Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I talk with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspire their chosen paths. Today is my great pleasure to talk with James Dorsey about the lagoon. But first, I'll pause for some information from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. So James, the, the lagoon, as those of us who have read your book now, is a lagoon down in, in Mexico in Baja where gray whales congregate. It's the encounter of Encounters with the Whales of San Ignacio. How did you come about finding this area to study? What was your what is your past interest that led you to want to write a book about whales? Uh, it evolved slowly over 25 years, believe it or not. Uh, actually, 27 years ago, my wife and I wanted something different for our 25th wedding anniversary. So we went on a sea kayaking trip in British Columbia and had a pot of orcas come right up to us, our first hour on the water, my first encounter with a whale ever. And I was so intrigued by that, that I started studying and taking classes when I got home. And the next year I went down to Mexico because a friend told me about this lagoon where you could pet gray whales. And like I said, that was 25 years ago. And for 22 of those years, I ended up the resident naturalist in that lagoon working on the water with these animals. Wow. So it was an, it was an orca in British Columbia that got me interested in gray whales in Mexico. Gotcha. They, they seem like very different types of whales, but you transitioned completely to, to gray whales or slowly? No, I, I mean, I've studied lots of different, probably seven or eight species of whales. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, I 
I so enjoyed being out on the water in Mexico. The, the lagoons in Mexico are the only place on earth where wild animals in their natural habitat routinely seek human contact. Now that sounds kind of far out, but it's a fact. And once I went down there and had these animals come right up to me, look me in the eye and wanting to be petted, bringing their babies to us, I was hooked and, and I still go back every year. And this is a an area different than Magdalena Bay or other places where people go to see whales. Yes, Magdalena Bay is further south and it is not as regulated as San Ignacio. When I was there, I thought the boats were harassing the animals, getting too close, invading their comfort zones. Uh, San Ignacio is highly regulated and we only allow a certain number of boats on the water and we never approach the animals. We cut our engine and they come to us. Uh, the Northern Lagoon, Scammons, is too many people, too many boats. I don't like it. It's, it's, it's just too crowded to enjoy what's going on around you. San Ignacio is the perfect balance in the middle for me. Now you say we regulate. Who, who are the we involved with that? Um, the Fisherman's Cooperative, Koyima, in, in the lagoon, they run everything. And the, the patron of the whole lagoon is a fellow named uh, Maldo Fisher, and he runs the camp. He built the camp that I worked at for 22 years. And there is an elected warden who is on the water at all times, keeping track of the number of boats, making sure no one is getting too close to the animals intentionally. And uh, they will issue fines if, if anything like that happens. There's no commercial boats allowed in the lagoon. There's no commercial fishing. There's no diving. Uh, there is fishing part of the year, but not for the public. It's the local people who are fishermen. But for five months a year, the local fishermen are uh, boat drivers taking people out to educate them about these animals. And these fishermen know whales like nobody on earth. I'll bet spending five months a year for most of their lives, all, for many of them probably all their lives so far, have been with whales as part of their existence. So wonderful. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're raising families there and we have little tiny one-year-old kids going out petting whales. I mean, they're growing up in nature and it's a great place for children. You, you do make the point that the gray whales are close to British Columbia part of the year. What, what's their migration route about? Well, they summer in the Chuksi and Bering Seas north of Alaska, northwest. But uh, since they don't echolocate, they have to migrate close to shore. They navigate by underwater geography that's imprinted in their DNA over centuries of doing this. So that's what they do. They fatten up there in the summer on the way south. They don't go, not all of them go all the way to Mexico. Uh, only, only probably 3,000 out of about 20,000 whales make it all the way to the Mexican lagoons. And the rest are strung out all along the rim of fire uh, looking for food. But that is the migration route. They hug the coast going south because, uh, like I said, they don't echolocate. Going north, they tend to stay a little farther out to sea because they're, they're taking their babies with them at that point north. And uh, they're trying to keep out of the way of orcas and sharks more on the way north. And does that that northern route take them more in line with the shipping routes along the, the Pacific coast? It, it tries to go outside the shipping routes, like on, on the uh, western side of the Channel Islands in Southern California. Uh, coming south, they'll be inside. Going north, they'll be outside. 
Same thing with the Farallons up near San Francisco. This is an annual migration of about 14,000 miles. It's the second longest aquatic migration on Earth. Only humpbacks swim further. Wow, that's pretty incredible. What distinguishes grays from the other whales that you've looked at over the years? Well, they're the slowest swimming of all the whales, and they are the only friendly whales that we know of that actually approach boats. Now, the interesting thing is on the open ocean, these animals will not approach a boat. You're lucky if you see them blow or see their tail when they fluke. But in the lagoon, over centuries, they've come to know they are safe. So they approach our boats. And uh, the lagoon is actually a nursery because gray whales are born with almost no natural instinct. They have to learn everything from their first breath to how to feed and and mother has four to six weeks to get that baby strong enough to swim 7,000 miles back to the Chuxi Sea. So the lagoon is actually a nursery and a training ground. And I've come to believe that those of us who work down there, we are the baby's rewards. When the baby has done all its mother wants it to do by swimming laps to build its stamina, when that baby needs a break, they, the mothers bring them to our boats to play with us. We're bathtub toys to them. They push our boats around. We've had big females lift us up out of the water. Not aggressive. This is all fun and playtime. We are a reward to these whales for, for them doing what they need to do. <laughs> That's a very idyllic and wonderful presentation of it. But um, I thought that most of the gray whales even don't really come up to boats and do it. It's sort of special to San Ignacio and and a few of the whales that are there, not all of them, or am I wrong? Well, they do approach boats in all three lagoons, but uh, it's a learned behavior and not all of them practice it. So if mother approaches boats, she'll pass that along to her offspring. If mother doesn't approach boats, her offspring never will. San Ignacio peaks at about 300 to 350 whales during the season. And of those, maybe 25 or 30 are what we will call friendly who approach boats. But uh, you only need one friendly whale to have a great day on the water. (laughs) We've had whales stay with us. Some whales will stay with us for hours. When we leave, they will follow us. I've come to know individual whales year after year because they return to the same lagoon they were born in. Wow. Now, if whales only take on behavior that their mother teaches them, and years ago coming up to a boat would have been, it would have meant death for the whale because we were, there was whaling going on. So. Yes, they, they've neared extinction twice. Uh, the first thing that saved the gray whales in 1939, there were only a handful of whales counting, uh, counted migrating south on the California coast. And we thought they were on the edge of extinction. What saved them was the Second World War. The industrial whaling nations of the world quit whaling for six years in order to kill their fellow human beings in a war. And during that time, the gray whale population rebounded. I mean, they came back to normal numbers, which were anywhere from 18 to 22,000 whales. Very healthy stock. But they... As soon as the war was over, these nations went back to whaling. And since the gray was the slowest of all whales, they were decimating them. They they were close to extinction a second time. And 
what happened was, and what I believe and many people believe, in 1972, this Mexican fisherman named Pachico Mayoral became the first person to touch a gray whale. Uh, in, in the early days when whaling was active in this lagoon, you know, Charles Scammons, which is a name most people know something about, he's the one that uh, went in and first started the slaughter of gray whales in this lagoon back about 1853. And the preferred method of whaling was to harpoon a baby whale, and that would, its cries of distress would bring mother in close where they could kill it. Mm. And since mother's Mothers would fight back using their tail as a mighty hammer. They, could, uh, they would attack these whale boats. And for that, for defending their young against slaughter, they were labeled devil fish. And that's a title they carried for 125 years. And that only came to an end in 1972 when this fisherman named Pachico Mayoral petted a devil fish for the first time. And he was terrified. He claims he doesn't know what made him do it. But this whale wouldn't leave his boat and kept rubbing on it until he reached over and petted it. And he said the whale responded to him. And almost overnight, people were going out on the water to pet the devil fish. And suddenly it occurred to people, wow, maybe these animals have always been friendly. We were just too busy killing them to know that. Interesting idea. Yes. So recently I spoke with a man named Thomas Dresser who wrote about uh, whaling in Martha's Vineyard. And for for him and what he, he was looking at, obviously different location, different situation completely, but he identified actually that the Civil War was the demise of whaling in New England area, or at least the whaling that was going on at the time, because the Confederates viewed any Northern ship as being potentially a war ship and sought to sink them all. And between the Civil War, the loss of all the ships, problems going up in the Arctic for the fishing up there, and then the discovery of oil in Titusville, Pennsylvania, that a lot of the New England fishing efforts stopped, perhaps much sooner than those did in California. Both of you are finding war as being a a benefit to whales, which bothers me a little bit. I know, but it's true. And what happened there, uh, a lot of these whalers were from Europe. Uh, A lot of them were from Portugal. And when whaling on the East Coast started to dry up, a lot of these guys migrated west and ended up uh, on the West Coast of America. And as late as 1965, there were shore-based whaling stations in California. The last one closed outside of San Francisco in 65, that recent. There were up to 20 shore-based whaling stations between uh, uh, northern Washington and southern California. And these, these were mostly manned by, by Portuguese and Spaniards and, and immigrants who, who had lost their livelihood on the East Coast. And what were the whale, I hate the answer to this, but what was the whale meat and body being used for? Um. Very few people were eating whale then. Uh, they still don't now. They wanted the oil. They would they would melt down the blubber, render it into an oil that was used to light lamps in those days. And the bones were made into curio pieces like corset stays and umbrella handles and you name it. I mean, they were they were making things out of every kind of every whale bone was carved and scrimshawed and 
I mean, these great museums like in New Bedford and, and Martha's Vineyard, they have thousands and thousands of whale bones that have been uh, cut and sculpted into various everyday objects. And that was the only purpose for killing them. Nobody was eating the whales. Uh, yeah. And, and it's still pretty much that way. I mean, there's only a few societies on earth that actually still eat whales. And even the great nations that were whalers, uh, like Norway has agreed to, to cease commercial whaling next year, finally, because there's this worldwide movement that's perpetuating itself now. Uh, people are coming to realize these animals are fellow sentient beings and we shouldn't be killing them. There are, there are less intelligent animals that we can eat without taking the smart ones first. Well, I think that that's, that's a curious comment or interesting comment because um, smartness is in the eye of the beholder, perhaps. And so we're, being the, we're, we're placing our criteria for smartness into that formula. There's a, um, a movement going on I, I learned about recently trying to make um, ecocide illegal, so trying to identify res ecological resource areas and, and environments that are it, it, that it is equivalent to murder to do anything that causes them to be degraded. And, you know, maybe the Lagoon, San Ignacio area would be one of those areas that would fall under some future protections as a protected ecosystem. Well, it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Mm -hmm. It got that status, I believe, in '98. Uh, but it's also a part of what we call the Vizcaino Biosphere, which is a massive area of central Baja, 5 million hectares that are protected. And the lagoon is in that area. And that, the biosphere got. Uh, UNESCO status in 1988, and 10 years later, the lagoon itself became uh, a UNESCO site. So it, it is protected. And I have to tell you, the people that live in the lagoon, uh, born and raised there, they are descendants of the original people, the Cochimi. And they, to them, these whales are family, and they take care of this lagoon like no place on earth I have ever seen. This is the most environmentally friendly place on earth. Even our camp is totally wind and solar powered. We, we don't uh, have very few modern conveniences there. It's all about the animals. That sounds like a great camp. It's wonderful. That's why I keep going back year after year. <laughs> how, how do you think whales became part of all the cave drawings inland of those areas? I think it was religious. Uh, the there are hundreds of painted caves in Baja, but only the ones directly inland from San Ignacio contain whales on the walls. And these are 25 miles from the ocean. So there was some serious reason why people eight to 10,000 years ago, that's what these paintings have been dated to. Why did these people travel so far on foot up into the mountains to put these animals on cave walls? Back then, it was believed, and it's still believed by a lot of uh, anthropologists and archaeologists, that putting an animal on a wall is taking its power for a hunt to kill it. But uh, I doubt that people that back then were actually killing these animals because they would only have dugout canoes in those days, and I don't think they were going to attack a 45-foot whale with a spear. 
I think they may have found dead whales on the beach, which would have been a normal occurrence because there were many more whales back then. And what did they think? Were these spirits? Were they sent by the gods? Were they a source of food? Uh, I think they painted them on the walls to have religious ceremonies with them. I mean, that's my personal belief. No one is ever going to know for sure. We may get some great time machine that will let us go back and figure that out, but I think speculation on it and intelligent speculation is where we're going to be for most of, for my life, for sure. Yes, absolutely. You write about the idea of discovering that whales have personalities. Whales are individuals and they interact differently respond to different stimuli. stimuli. Um, one little baby whale that was had boats on both sides of it starts ramming them both through kind of uh, getting a little claustrophobic perhaps. But it seems like we have always, we have given many animals uh, some sense of personality. People's dogs and cats, probably it goes more into pets uh, riding horses, those horses had personalities for sure. Um, but your sense is that really it wasn't until we started having really close encounters with whales that we gave them a personality opportunity. That's true. I mean, I am uh, accused of anthropomorphism, if I said that correctly, quite often, because I, I do assign human traits to these animals. I mean, I've watched mother whales nuzzling their young like any human mother would do. I, I, I've watched them training their young. Uh, I've watched them correct their young when they do something wrong. There, there's a lot of human traits that I see in them. And uh, just the fact that certain whales I've come to know year after year, uh, I, they have come back to my particular boat. And I think they might even recognize individual boat drivers that are out there because like I said, they come back to the same lagoon every year. And these guys have worked there their whole lives. Most of the people in the lagoon, they, they give names to some of these whales and uh, we can identify them from their coloration patterns, from scarring, from prop strikes, from birth defects, birthmarks, all kinds of different things. And I, I've known many whales personally in that, in that respect. Do you think their sight is good enough to recognize humans by sight? Or is it some other sense they use to find us? That I really don't know. Um, their eyesight is fairly good, especially underwater. It's much better than up. But uh, that, that brings up an interesting point because like, uh, during the migration, the mother will not stop swimming uh, all the way from Alaska down to Mexico. And if she has her calf along the way, she will only stop long enough to bear that calf. Then she'll push it up to the surface to take its first breath. She'll tuck it under a pectoral fin and she will start swimming again, pulling that baby along in her slipstream because it's not strong enough to swim on its own yet. Wow. I'm not sure how they identify us like that. I just know that it has happened to me year after year. Particular whales have come to my boat that uh, I, I have photographs of them from this year to the next to the next like that. So I don't know about identification. I mean, how they see us. 
Uh, it might be the sound of the boat engine that brings them. How about the way that a mother would always find her baby or baby find the mother? Well, they do speak. It's just uh, in such low ranges that we can't really hear it. I mean, occasionally we put uh, uh, microphones down into the water and we record their speech. Uh, We certainly don't know what they're saying at this point, although there is a lot of research being done now about interspecies communication. And I hope at some point in the not too distant future, we can start decoding some of these sounds and assigning meanings to them and perhaps communicate with these animals on some primitive level. Who knows? Yeah, I was just reading something or watching something, I forget which, about artificial intelligence and how it's being used to interpret the vocalizations from different animals. Going back to Roger Payne's um, taping of whale sounds years and years ago and and seeing if there are ways to um, recognize through AI. There was a fellow named Paul Spong. I don't know if he's still around, but he was the first one who filled the the Johnstone Strait or uh, the Inside Passage, as a lot of people call it, with uh, underwater microphones. And he recorded every orca that swam through there until he had recorded each individual pod's dialect, because orcas, each pod speaks a different dialect from the area they're in. Plus, there are resident and transient and offshore orcas, and they all speak differently. But what he found he back in the 60s, when we still had these theme parks that, to me, were always torture chambers, they had these confined animals in small pools. Dr. Spong took his recordings down there, and he played them to these animals in the water. And they only responded to the particular calls from their home pod they had been taken from. So that was proof that they do have an advanced language system. And again, I, I, I write quite a bit in the book about whales in captivity because to me, that's, that's just the worst form of cruelty. These animals are used to swimming hundreds of miles in a day and to put them in a size of a swimming pool is torture. It's like locking you inside a a closet 24-7. Yeah. We are ending a lot of that, but certainly not soon enough. No, and uh, we, we have proof now that a lot of Russian whalers are still collecting illegally uh, orcas on the open ocean, and they are selling them to Chinese theme parks, which are proliferating at an alarming rate. And uh, that that really disturbs me because uh, it's been illegal to take an orca from the wild for about 35, 40 years now. What do you think is an answer to that? I, I There really is none. I mean, we have the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and, and uh, the thing is with these these laws we've passed to protect these animals have no teeth. I mean, who's out there on the middle of the open ocean enforcing this, saying you're getting too close to an animal? The Navy isn't about to do it. In fact, the, the Navy keeps captive dolphins that they use as work animals. And since other countries know that we do this, and other countries also keep dolphins for naval purposes, a lot of dolphin are just being shot whenever they get near a ship on the open ocean because they assume they're, they're, they've been weaponized. The Navy used to call them uh, uh, bionic, uh, 
bionic weapon systems. That was what they called their captive dolphins. I thought that had ended, but I'm not up on everything that's going on. And I have not been able to get an answer from the Navy. They kept up to 60 dolphins at a, at a site in San Diego. And uh, I, I have contacted them a number of times and gotten nowhere about how active the program is to this day. I really don't know. So I, I don't want to leave this discussion completely. I want to come back to it, but I want to get back to the experiences in San Ignacio and the interactions with human and whales. Do you think that people have any responsibilities uh, for for um, having formed bonds with a whale and then you, you go back from your vacation, you give them a kiss and... Um, and, and you're gone, are there, what should we be doing about that? Or is that just okay? A lot of people are very critical of the fact that we touch these animals out there. Uh, there's one person in particular who's uh, come after me on the internet quite often. Uh, I'm not going to name that person, but they, they believe it's totally wrong and they're entitled to that opinion. But the fact is, uh, these whales have been coming to these lagoons for thousands of years, and we've only been petting them for a very brief amount of that time, and they have not changed their behaviors in any way that any any of us can see. Uh, they come to us because they want to come to us. Uh, they like the sensation of touch. I mean, they have no arms or legs. They rub on boats quite often uh, to scratch. Uh, they like the feeling of touch, and we provide that, and they're certainly not picking up any diseases from us out on the open ocean. So I, I, I see nothing wrong with it. I think it's just a gift we've been given that we can communicate with them on that level. And then when your vacation is over or your time as the naturalist there is over and you leave, it's, it's fine. To, um, there's no separation anxiety that you would expect. I don't think so. We're not we're not with them that much. I mean, I am not. Perhaps some of the local people who live there, yes. But the thing is, those animals are only going to be in that lagoon for a maximum of, of six or seven weeks. And then they're going to leave and go north to feed. So they might form a bond in that amount of time. And perhaps that's why they come back to the same boat year after year. They may recognize, hey, that's the guy who petted me a year ago. I don't know. Perhaps those separation anxieties are more for the pangoneers and such who are, are then having no whales around to enjoy and pet. That's true. That's very true. I mean, they. Yeah. I know that they definitely have names for some of these animals, but I, I couldn't really comment with any authority on separation anxiety. I, I don't think we spend that much time together. <laughs> Just, I'm obviously anthropomorphizing these whales more than um, taking it beyond the, the enjoyment of being touched and having your, your tongue scratched. Ooh, sounds horrible to me, but maybe they like that. <laughs> they enjoy it. They come to the boats and they open their mouths. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm giving presentations currently. And I'm showing videos of them doing this, and people are astounded. They like to have their baleen stroked. They like to have their tongue scratched. Mothers will put a baby on her stomach and turn upside down and let us pet the baby. Uh, and and 
you get to observe this this bond between the mother and and the offspring. Like when the calf is newborn, we call them pickles because that's what they look like. They're all wrinkled and uh, uncoordinated. Takes them a few weeks before they even straighten out and look like a whale. And uh, when they come up to the boats, we've mother will impose herself between the boat and her newborn when they are still young, like in January. But by February, mothers will start to put the baby next to the boat when they start to realize the baby's big enough to, we're not a threat to them. And that's when they start coming to us. And uh, once the baby has had some attention, a lot of times the big females will push the baby aside and come in for their pet because mothers need love too. And they do that. Yeah. And we've even had, I, I had once a, a large female, she was probably 47, 48 feet, which is unusual, came up under my boat upside down, held the boat with her pectoral fins and literally picked us up three or four inches out of the water and started turning us around, having fun with us like that. I guess everybody on the boat has their life jackets on at that time. We do. But we've never had a boat go over. We've never had a person dumped in the water. The only time that ever happened in this lagoon that has ever been documented was in about 1964. It was one of Cousteau's crews that were harassing a whale to get a a shot. And the whale breached under their boat and destroyed it. Well, we know they can do it. We We have never had anything like that happen in all the years I've been there and many years before me. Yeah. So one of the reasons gray whales in particular eat so much is to keep their body temperature up. I've sort of been thinking through my head, what's going to go on with um, higher water temperatures and where that will come out with their food intake needs? Will it be beneficial? And clearly there are other things with global warming that will be so detrimental to the whales that um, I'm not pointing it out as being a good thing. But what do you see as the sort of future trend for whales with warmer temperatures? It scares me to death. I mean, I read just the other day that waters off northern Alaska are elevated as much as 10 degrees in some areas, and that's biblical to these animals. Uh, the first thing that's going to happen is a loss of a food source because the krill and amphipods cannot survive in water of that temperature. They have to have a certain temperate zone they can thrive in. And if the temperatures rise in the ocean, the food source is going to go first, and then the whales will start starving. This has happened in the past, but I think now it's a permanent condition. A friend of mine in Florida the other day uh, told me that literally they have found fish that have been boiled just on the beach because the water temperature there is so hot. Yeah. Even if you want to stay warm, it doesn't help you to have warmer water. No, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. (laughs) Doesn't work for us either, so yeah. I can understand that. Um, You end your book about a lot of the threats that have been identified to whales, specifically down in the Baja area with the Mitsubishi Mitsubishi salt mines, salt... Salt works, yes. uh, Salt works and such. Um, And so far with 
positive for Wales results? So far, uh, ever since, well, uh, Scammon's Lagoon has a huge salt works in it that is Mitsubishi partnered with the Mexican government. And Mitsubishi tried to do the same thing in San Ignacio and it's still an ongoing battle, even though it was years ago. The National Resources Defense Council is the main defender of this lagoon as far as those legal matters go, trying to keep the salt works out. Because to put, a, to put that in there would require a huge infrastructure to support it, and, and the whales would simply stop coming. Now, what would that mean? I mean, these animals have been going there for tens of thousands of years. It's in their DNA. And suddenly they get down there and their habitat is destroyed. What happens to them? What do they do? They, they, I have no idea. It would be just catastrophic. So we've managed to keep developers at bay so far. There's also been a lot of uh, Japanese developers who want to build uh, uh, resorts every few miles on the western coast of Baja. And they are doing it, but we have stopped them from getting near the mouth of the lagoon so far. And also the NRDC has uh, purchased vast stretches of land surrounding the lagoon to stop development around it. So, so far, we're holding our own against all of this. But it is an ongoing battle because there's always somebody out there who wants to make a buck off of it and wants to put up a high rise in a beautiful place. Uh, You know, this is what uh, Joni Mitchell sang about in the 60s, right? Take paradise and put up a parking lot. A lot of people who want to do that. Mm-hmm. One of my old bosses said that the coast is never saved. We're always trying to save it. And I think that's true for many, many systems like whaling um, habitat areas and different species and different types of, of lands that are so important to the um, animals and creatures that need those. I've come to believe that more and more over the years. Yeah. I feel like I'm in the middle of a nonstop battle that won't end in my lifetime. And all I can do is keep trying to educate people and put the word out there. Um, in talking about the gray whale migration and the use of bathymetry, topography, subsea topography as a, as a guidepost for traveling back and forth, um, I don't know that there's any subsea mining that close in, but for the deep sea mining that's being proposed, but um, any areas that might be of critical concern like subsea mining that would impair migration routes? There is a mine about 20 miles due west of San Ignacio Lagoon. It's in only only 80 feet of water. So it's very accessible. That's an ongoing legal battle right now. So far, it's been blocked in the courts down there from proceeding ahead. Uh, The developers are saying that it doesn't affect the whales, which is nonsense. I mean, the noise alone would stop them from from, uh, going into the lagoon. But it's, it's ironic that this particular mine is right there adjacent to where the whales go in and out of the lagoon. And that's a constant threat. That's the only mining operation I'm aware of anywhere near it. Well, that's one too many, but I'm glad it's just one. Yes. Yeah. So you've been on a book tour about the lagoon. Are 
Are there sections of the book that uh, you normally talk about, that you read from, anything that people really resonate with? I haven't been reading that much from the book. I, I, it's been my experience that people get a little bored when you're standing there reading, and I get a much better response when I'm showing images and videos. So I, I take specific things from the book, and I present that in images. And at the end of my, my presentations, then I tell, this is in the book. This is what you can read. If you want more information about what I just told you, this is there. And I cover a lot of ground, anthropology, indigenous people, natural history, whales in captivity, illegal whaling. It's all in the book. And I prefer to tell people that and let them read it themselves rather than try to bore them with me standing there reading a sentence after sentence that, that it, it, it doesn't have the same impact as showing the animals up on a screen. That's true. Well, in your epilogue, though, you do talk about the most unusual place you found a whale. And have you figured out where the baleen in Timbuktu came from? <laughs> it had to be uh, traded. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. But that, that was a great day. I had these two desert nomads sitting on my, my bed in my hotel room in Timbuktu looking at whale images on a black and white TV screen yelling, big fish, big fish. <laughs> They're so true. Well, big mammal, big mammal, but we're not going to be particular for that part. Well, they had no reference point. Oh, the biggest animal they'd ever seen was a hippo because they're a landlocked country. They've never seen any sea creatures before. So that was the only thing they could compare it to. And interesting, though, that the lady that had the baleen in, in uh, the marketplace down there she showed me how to use it as a broom. That's what she thought it was. Well, that's kind of a useful purpose for you. You're not going to strain your food with it, are you? Right. Yeah, no. But I do, I do have a very large hunk of baleen in my office. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, are there any writers that have influenced you, especially writers about the coast or about whales that you just found you you go back to their work for for inspiration i i couldn't really name anybody i've read so many books by so many people regarding whales and and all of that um i i can't say that anyone has been an influence i specifically tried not to imitate anybody i i felt like i have such a unique position doing what I'm doing. There's the, the very few people that have the access to these animals in the way that I do. So I just preferred to use my own voice and not let any outside influences come into that. And do you have any future plans for writing more about whales or San Ignacio? Uh, I've probably said as much as I can about that lagoon in this book. I mean, I will continue to write articles. Yes. And, uh, I mean, maybe an updated in, in two or three years of what's happening in the lagoon. And if we're still battling people from putting salt works in and developing and all that sort of thing. I don't have any long range plan at this point. Uh, other than I want to keep going down there and being on the water with these animals. Okay. And then because this is the Sh American Shoreline Podcast Network, one of my questions is often whether you have a favorite beach 
And since you're in both California and Baja, you can name two if you'd like. Uh, I like Del Monte Beach in uh, Monterey, which is about a 10-minute drive from my home. I love that that place. It is covered with sea glass all the time, and I take my dog there a couple of days a week, and there's nobody around during the week. I have the place to myself, and I just love it down there. And the whale camp in Baja, well, the beaches down there are littered with whale bones. It, it's a natural history museum just to walk along the shore there. It, it doesn't get any better than that to, to see nature up close. Wonderful. And before we leave, um, how can people find your book? It's on any major bookseller site. Uh, the full title is The Lagoon Encounters with the Whales of San Ignacio. Barnes & Noble, Book Locker, Cheap Books, Amazon, everybody sells it. Any book that has an ISBN number is available on any major bookseller. So they can find it just about anywhere. Well, James, thank you so much for talking today about The Lagoon, your book on whales. And I, I just think it's been fascinating. I loved reading your book. I hope that those listening to this podcast will enjoy the discussion about your book and consider going out and getting a copy and read it for yourself. Um, it's certainly an inspiration for taking action and considering what's going on, what our actions are doing. Um, toward the gray whale population and other whale populations, the orcas, the humpbacks, and the others. And um, till next time, I hope you enjoy the coast and your view of the shore. Mm -hmm.